0: Just jump on our website, empowerchurch.co and all the details are there. We really hope that you enjoy the message. I even read my chicken scroll during worship. It was a beautiful man who was here. Uh, Prayer ministry earlier. Yes, hello, I'm Stacey. Um... You know, I, as soon as you got up here, I was like, I want to know your stories. I was like, I want to come and ask you what you've seen in the kingdom. Like, I want to know, tell me all the God's stories, like all the amazing things you've seen God do. And I just want to say to the men of this house, you have a library of miracles and the Lord's treasures in this man. Thanks. I also sensed there'd been a very deep loss and that the Lord just wanted to acknowledge your faithfulness in that loss. And He says, and now He's going to give you multitudes of spiritual sons, multitudes of spiritual sons. And so Father, I thank You for these generals in the faith who stayed faithful in loss, deep loss. And I thank You for the spiritual sons that are going to gather. I thank You that this man's humility, for his humility. And Lord, um, that has meant at times that he hasn't said much, but I thank You that now is the time when all the Kingdom stories come pouring out and it's gonna build faith in spiritual sons for what You're going to do in the future. I thank You that the family of God is a generational place. I honour this man and this couple before You. And I thank you that the war stories will become glory stories in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. All right. Thank you, Pastor Matt. All right, let's open the word together because it's very good. <laughs> let's have a look at Second um, Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to talk to you tonight about beholding and becoming. Beholding and becoming. 2 Corinthians 3. I'm just going to look at verses 17 and 18. This is Apostle Paul writing. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know, most of us in this room would be familiar with the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Who knows that song? It's been sung for generations, right? What is perhaps a little less well known is the story behind the song, and so I'm going to share that with you today. It's actually written by a woman named named Helen Lemmel. She was born in 1864. And she was a musician, a songwriter, a vocalist. Um, She was travelling around on the gospel music circuit, even in those days. And she was also teaching vocals in seminaries. She was an American woman who married a German man. And tragedy struck her in her early 40s when she got very, very ill. And as a result of that illness, she was left blind. And then her husband, because he didn't want to take care of a blind wife, he actually abandoned her. So there she was, left alone with no children, blind, husband gone, in her early 40s. And yet she still had this desire to write songs for the Lord. And so she would sit at a piano and she would feel her way across the keys. And her friends would come and notate the melodies she wrote and the lyrics she wrote. And by the time she died at the age of 97, she actually wrote nearly 500 hymns in her blindness. One of her most famous was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let's not miss how significant it is that a blind woman wrote the song Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Because although blind physically, it was her spiritual insight that still encourages us today to turn the eyes of our hearts towards Jesus. She understood that what we behold actually shapes our lives. Think about it, she had every reason to take a good, hard, long look at how difficult her life was, the fact that she'd been abandoned, left all alone. And if she had beheld that, she would have lived in bitterness, but instead she discovered the secret of turning her eyes upon Jesus, and so now even the testimony of her life holds authority when we sing that song today. You see, we are all born looking for a face to tell us who we are. Do you know, scientific studies have shown that a baby from seven hours out of the oven, just seven hours old, begins to look to make eye contact with faces. The reason that it does this, that a baby does this, it's wired and created by God to try and create deep emotional connections, Now, it doesn't know in its brain that's what it's doing, but that's the way God created a newborn. By just two days old, a baby prefers looking at faces that look back at it. In other words, it begins to scan over faces that are looking everywhere and it will lock eyes with someone who's looking back at it. By four months of age, the longer a child has stared into an adult's eyes, the more deeply embedded that person will be on the baby's brain, emotional brain centre, for the rest of their life. Babies are looking at the primary faces that hold their DNA in most cases. In other words, they're born by DNA, you and I are, born looking for a face to tell us who we are. Let's think about scripture for a second. We've got Adam, the Lord, Father God incarnate, bends over the earth. He forms Adam's body out of dust. He breathes his ruah, his breath into Adam. What would have been the first thing Adam saw? God's face. And then he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He removes one of his ribs. Again, he comes low. He begins to form Eve's body. He breathes his ruah into Eve. Eve was born looking at what? Face of the Father. Genesis 1.27, the Father said, let us, the Trinity, make man and woman in our image. So they were created looking into the face of the one whose image they were created in. They were born looking for a face to tell them who they were. And we all know the story that sin broke this union. And where Adam and Eve once lived with their faces to God, they get behind a tree and they intentionally hide their face from God because of sin and shame. And so they're driven out of the garden and they actually lose access to his face, which broke God's heart. And now, spoiler alert, the whole rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is either a glimpse of, points towards, is a prophecy about, or is the actual restoration of this face-to-face relationship. It's one of the main narratives all the way throughout Scripture. Think with me for a moment about Moses. Moses was a man who caught a revelation of something more than God's people were currently experiencing. In Exodus 19 and 20, it's a couple of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, it's one of the most epic corporate encounters in all of Scripture. And here they are, the 12 tribes of Israel. Scripture tells us they were wrapped around the base of the mountain facing inwards because God says he was going to presence himself with them. So they're stationed around the mountain looking to presence because God has always intended that presence would be central to his people. So there they are, they're around Mount Sinai. There is smoke everywhere because the Lord has come in fire. The mountain was trembling. A trumpet sounds and keeps on getting louder. And then God calls to Moses and his voice sounds like thunder. But the people say to Moses, oh, hang on a second. This is all a little bit too much. We're just going to hang back here. You go in and talk to to God, Moses. We'll just wait back here. And so I want us to notice that Moses felt fear and he stepped into the unknown and he was transformed. The Israelites felt the same fear and they fell back and instead of being transformed, they created a counterfeit God to worship and fell into idolatry. Why? Because we're all created to worship and to live in face to face intimacy. So, when we face those moments where it all feels a little bit much and it all feels a little bit scary, and we're not quite sure what's on the other side, we too have a choice. Yeah. Will I hang back and inevitably create something counterfeit to worship because I'm created for it? Or will I step into the unknown and end up transformed like Moses did? Exodus thirty-three, eleven says the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, I don't have time to theologically explain that this wasn't talking about like a man standing eye to eye, nose to nose. This is Moses seeing the glory of the Lord. So today, as I share about gazing at Jesus' face or gazing at the face of the Lord, you may not see the face of the man off the chosen. <laughs> I'm talking here about gazing at his beauty and his majesty and his character and his goodness, but this is often referred to in the Bible as his face. And Moses would come out of these encounters and the skin of his face would shine. Now, ladies, this was before Mac and Nas. Before we were paying $70 to get that nice little shiny strip down our nose and up our cheek. Moses was getting up, well, not really for free, but he had to go into God's presence. He beheld God's face and he came out literally transformed into the substance of God who is light himself. The Hebrew original word actually means that he glowed with supernatural beams of light. He took on the composition of God himself. And Moses recovered in part something that Adam and Eve forfeited in the garden. Now I want you to think with me for a moment. Us penties, we love that Acts 2 passage, don't we? It's got all the bells and whistles. But here we have 120 people in an upper room. Commentators would tell us that whilst they were there in that upper room waiting as Jesus instructed them to, it was Exodus 19 that they were reciting. So it puts this Acts 2 and Exodus 19 beside one another. One epic corporate encounter and another. So as they're reciting Exodus 19 with there's smoke and fire and an earthquake and a trumpet and all the rest of it, it starts to happen in their midst. Wow. There is fire. There is a sound. Yeah. There is the wind. Now think about this in Exodus 19 the gift God gave His people when He presenced Himself with them was the Torah, the law. In Acts 2, the gift God gave His people when He presenced Himself with them was the Holy Spirit. Now in Exodus 19 and 20, Moses comes down after receiving the Torah And he's like, what are they doing? They're dancing, they're singing before a golden calf. He smacks the tablets. I probably would have done the same thing. And then he's like, right, who's going to help me fix this? And the Levites are like, we are your guys? He's like, get your sword, go around and kill your brothers. They're like, okay, that's all right. And so 3,000 men lose their lives that day. Tell me, how many were added to the church in Acts 2? 3,000. And so these are what we call mirror passages where God was redeeming the Exodus corporate encounter where his people stepped back instead of coming in like when Adam and Eve hid behind a tree instead of staying face to face and he was giving them an upgrade, the Holy Spirit. And Paul is talking about this in our passage, an upgrade from law to spirit. You see, Moses desired encounter with God more than he feared the unknown. And Moses lived a life that teaches you and I today that we behold what we desire and we become what we behold. Another way of saying that is what you truly desire the most is what you will look at, is what you will behold. There was another Old Testament man who caught a revelation of and offers us a pre-Christ glimpse of this face-to-face relationship. Now, I'm just telling you that if heaven has deli tickets where you take a number, I have taken one right through to 20,000 to spend some time with this man. I want time with this man in heaven. He was a man who was known for his desire. He's a man who was known as the man after God's own heart. I am, of course, speaking about King David. He writes in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So this was David's desire. More than any other thing was to gaze at the Lord and to behold him. You know, I love that when we read David's story, when he was king, he didn't set himself up as or see himself as, and he didn't expect the people in his kingdom to see him as the most magnificent person in the kingdom. In fact, he went to great efforts and personal sacrifice to make sure that under his leadership and his rulership, that King, Father God, God himself was the most magnificent person in the kingdom. Now, Acts calls David a prophet because he caught a glimpse of a coming New Testament reality. I personally believe when I read Revelation, John the Revelator has this encounter where he falls down like he's dead. Risen Christ appears to him. Get your pen, John. I want you to write a few things down for seven churches. And so John writes down this Revelation. I believe that David had a vision of what we read about through John in Revelation 4 and 5, where it describes harp and bowl, worship and intercession together. Because David spent nearly $6 billion in today's terms of his own money, establishing 24-7 prayer and worship with singers, musicians and intercessors who gazed at the Lord and simply responded. So in the Mosaic... Days Moses had the tent that had veils and sacrifices and nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. David, when he brought the ark into Jerusalem, he put it in a tent with no curtains, no sacrifices. The presence was available for everyone. David restored presence at the centre of an entire nation again. This is why he was described as a man after God's own heart. Because he caught a glimpse of what the father lost and what the father desired. And pre-Christ, he did his best to restore it at personal cost. So if he is not our greatest desire, we simply will not behold him. And we will ultimately not become like him. And if we're not becoming like him, it means we're not beholding him. And if we follow the trail all the way back, it leads to what we truly desire. Now, desire isn't a very popular word in church. Because I think in a way we've learned to suppress our desires, because our desires can at times lead to sin. But actually in your purest state, your desires are like a magnet that are meant to be awake and draw you to the face of God. So I think the Lord is actually reawakening desire in His bride. One of the things that I sense has happened is that there are some common misdirected desires that have snuck their way into the church because they're the prevailing culture of the world. It's almost like Romans 12 has been tipped upside down. We've lived in the world so much, we've become a little bit too conformed to it that we don't realise we're not being transformed by His presence. So I just want to suggest a couple of things that are possibilities that maybe we're bringing into some of our church experience. And I believe that it's important that we allow the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, you, you just... Actually, one degree off here. I think anyone in this room doesn't want to come and love the Lord well. I can, I can see that. But it's important we let the Holy Spirit realign us. So here's a couple of suggestions. You know, the world has an insatiable desire to be entertained. But if we bring that desire to be entertained into our relationship with God and into the house of God we will actually prevent, it will prevent us from experiencing the transformation that comes through face-to-face encounter. It's entertainment or encounter. Another one could be if we're only in relationship with God and we only come to church for God's benefits, what he can do for us, because we live in a world of like, what are my benefits going to be? Like, What am I going to get out of this? We've got benefits in our jobs. We've got benefits with our friends. We've got benefits here and benefits there. And so we come at times to our relationship with God, and it's not wrong for us to want him to heal us. It's not wrong. He wants to pour out good gifts on us, but it's not the goal when we come to the house. It's not the goal of relationship with him. Our goal is to behold him and to become like him. So it's benefits or beholding. What about our desire for feel-good emotions? The world will tell us, hey, whatever feels good, you do that, be that. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it at all costs. But if we bring that feel good mentality when it comes to the presence of God, when the refiner's fire starts to fall, who knows that doesn't always feel so good. And so this is emotionalism versus transformation. I love this quote from Derek Prince. He says, you can join the church and not be changed. You cannot meet Jesus and not be changed. I actually burn an ache for a day when you cannot come to church and not be changed because the church's one desire becomes beholding Jesus once again. So if you walk in the door, you're going to come smack bang up close and personal with him. In our passage, Paul puts it this way. And we all with unveiled face, he's referencing a couple of things here when he says unveiled. He's referencing the fact that when Moses would go in and we'd get his NARS glow on, that the people would be like, Moses, you're being a bit much. We told you we want to stay at a distance. Can you put something over that glow? Because it's confronting us. So Moses would put a veil on. Paul is saying here, we with unveiled faces, we can have it off now through the work of Jesus. He's also referencing the moment where Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, which gave us free access to the Holy of Holies. So, when he says this, we all with unveiled face, no obstacles, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, if we were to meet the Apostle Paul today and say, you know what, Paul, most of the New Testament is your letters, we kind of think you know a thing or two about church planting and growing and extending the kingdom could you tell us what is your theology on discipleship? He would say, oh yeah, I wrote that in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. This right here is the Apostle Paul's theology on discipleship. Think with me for a moment. We know from Scripture that Paul actually learned about the law under a very well-known rabbi. His name was Gamaliel. We read that Paul would sit at his feet and learn. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant... far as rabbis go he was like a big deal right but that's not the only way he got this philosophy or theology on discipleship because remember when Saul was walking on a road in Acts 9 he had all the learning he'd done the Torah tots he had all the learning and memorising everything he needed to do right but he came face to face with Jesus and then he was no longer Saul he was Paul and so this is where he gets his theology. If you want to become like him, you need to behold him. Yeah. Yeah, great. You see, God did not become a man to improve our lives. He actually came to make us like him. And so the goal of beholding is not just to behave like Jesus, but to become like Jesus. Jesus. You know, when I was growing up, my great-grandmother and my grandmother had parrots and cockatoos that could talk. They would impersonate you. So we'd walk into the house. They lived in um, Lake Boga in Victoria, and it was Lake Bogan, let me tell you. And um, I would walk in on her. She had this scratchy carpet with these um, squares, and you could change the pattern. That's what I did every Christmas. It was very fun. But you would walk in, and the cockatoos and the parrots would impersonate you. They could say many, many phrases. But how many people here know that though those parrots could impersonate me, they could never become me? This is not a season for a church full of parrots because we cannot settle for behaviour modification when heart transformation is available. So I think it's a season for us to be so careful that we don't reduce discipleship to the acquisition of information. Learning is a very important part of the discipleship process, but who knows if it was just learning, Saul would still be Saul. But learning that leads us to encounter with the Lord, that teaches us how to behold, that carves well-worn pathways for us so we can behold the face of Jesus, that's real discipleship. I mean, think about it. We're the most informed generation there's ever been. But are we the most transformed? Some would say the church looks more like the world, the world than it ever has before. And so this creates a problem because then we don't have solutions for the age and the culture we live in. If we're merely living in behaviour modification where it's like monkey see, monkey do, then when you're in your workplace or your university or your school, in the cultural pressure cooker that we live in, where there's gender fluidity, the sanctity of life is not even a thing, this is the first generation, Alpha Gen, is the first generation that's being raised underneath a government in our nation that says there's no absolute truth. Yeah. We are living in a cultural pressure cooker. And if we're only living in behavior modification, we will become silent when we most need to speak, or we will speak and we will not sound like Jesus. But if we desire Him, reawaken our desire for how we were created to be drawn to Him, and we behold Him and we become like Him, then when we face these situations in our life, we will speak like the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And then we will also speak in love because we will be like the one who is love. So we won't be in situations going, oh, shall I choose truth or love today? No, we'll have both running together. Just like Jesus when he was at the well with that woman in John 4. And he starts disclosing deep and shameful secrets in her heart. And she doesn't get behind a tree and hide and be like, oh, gee, Jesus, a bit much. Because he had truth and love running together. She actually left and said, oh, guys, you got to come and meet this Jesus. He told me everything I've ever done. Now, when we behold him, and we become like him, we can run with truth and love as well. And so Paul says we're being transformed into the same image. This word transformed is the word metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. You know, you learned about this in primary school, where it goes from a caterpillar into a cocoon into a butterfly. The word means you're not being changed a little bit. You're going from one state to a completely unrecognisable state. Caterpillar to butterfly. It says you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. This word image here is the same, or it's the Greek equivalent of the word we read in Genesis 1:27, where the Father said, Let us make man in our image. Salem. Paul is using the Greek equivalent, the word econ. It was also the word used. Uh, to describe the coins that they used that were stamped with Caesar's image. They were stamped with Caesar's image so people would know they had value and authenticity. In other words, what Paul is saying is as we behold Him, we're transformed from one state into a completely other where we have the value and authenticity of God Himself. In other words, we're being restored to our Eden-like state, pre-breaking of face-to-face relationship. So our role is to behold His glory the Holy Spirit's role is to transform us into the likeness of this glory. So I, I love imagining things, right? I imagine the Holy Spirit is watching us go about our day and He's like, oh, is she gonna look? Is He gonna look? I think sometimes the Holy Spirit's hovering over our worship services even. Oh, are they gonna look? Because if they just look at me, not the worship leader, not the preacher, not everything else that's going around. But if they just look at me, Holy Spirit's like, oh yes, go time, they've done their part. And then He can move and He can begin to transform us. He can do something we can't do in our own might and in our own power. The Word says it's by the Spirit of the Lord. And this isn't behaviour modification, it's complete transformation. Because here's the thing, not only do we become what we behold, we reproduce what we behold. My kids are texting me a lot. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) mom, what's for dinner? (sighs) Only the church beholding him can become the transformed bride betrothed to him. So important. In Revelation 19, it's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb It says for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Notice the bride has made herself ready. How does the bride ready herself? How do we become the bride in verse eight? It says she's dressed in fine linen, that she's bright and pure. I want us to drill down for a moment. Why linen? God told Moses that the priests should wear linen. Think about David. David danced before the ark, the Lord's presence, in what? A linen ephod. He actually wasn't a priest, he was a king, but he chose to take on the role of a priest before the Lord's presence. So he wore a linen ephod and then it prophesies to the end when there is a new heaven and a new earth and us the bride will be once again dressed like the royal priesthood in linen. Why linen? Because you can't sweat in linen. This is why God designated linen, because this isn't about our own effort. This is about being transformed by Holy Spirit when we look at Jesus. And then it says the bride will be bright and pure. Who have we spoken about today that had their glow on? Moses. How did he get bright and pure? He looked at the one who is bright and pure. He took on his nature and became just like him. So how will the bride ready herself through beholding him and becoming like him? I love that Paul is writing to a corporate body, verse 18, and we all. You know, I think it's easy for us in an individualistic world, it's about my walk. It's about my relationship with Jesus. And Matthew 6 encourages our personal relationship with Jesus. But Paul's actually writing to a church when you come together, behold the glory of the Lord. It's not so much the me, it's the we. I love this quote. It says Jesus is not a polygamist, He is not looking for a million brides who love Him individually. He is looking for a single corporate bride, a people who have been formed together to be his companion. So I sense, and I'm sure there are many of you in the room who sense this with me, that the global church is in somewhat of a transition. The way I see it is we're actually at that moment where the Lord is presencing himself on his people in unusual ways. And we have a decision. Are we going to go, Ooh, that's a bit much, and step back and once again create some golden calves that we worship? Or are we going to decide, I'm going to step into the unknown and be transformed? Because I actually think it's very important we understand that we must behold the right thing in the process of becoming the new thing. If we do not behold God, we will measure success or Christian maturity based on what we do behold. Let me say that again. If we do not behold God, we will measure success or Christian maturity based on what we do behold. What do I mean? Let me break it down. When we measure success by gazing at Instagram, Snapchat, Snapchat and the talk, We may not literally become a post, but we will have to live into the fullness of our false selves. We will suffer with imposter syndrome. All the while, we will sacrifice our authenticity on the altar of approval because we're always ready for that snap so we can post, we can watch the clock tick until the likes start pouring in and make sure you keep your filters on at all times. When we measure, I'm going to, <laughs> when we measure success by gazing at our own navels or self-help principles, we may not praise the Lord literally become a navel or a guru, <laughs> but we will create a God in our own image, projecting a pig, us, onto the world, a God who thinks like us, rules like us, loves like us, and we will sacrifice His kingdom on the altar of our own kingdom. When we measure success by gazing at our neighbour or the co-worker in the next office or the perfect mum at the drop-off or the church down the road or the pastor with the bigger church or the friend who just always seems to get it right, we won't become them but we will forfeit our own souls and our God-given individuality and calling on the altar of comparison and then we'll stand before God and say, why don't I ever feel like I'm living an abundant life? When we measure success by gazing at the leadership principles of the world and the structures of man. We may not become Steve Jobs or the next Apple, Microsoft or Google, but we will become CEOs and managers of organisations in our approach. We will have hirelings and employees, all the while sacrificing our kingdom identity as the family of God on the altar of a big church and growth and success. But... When we measure success by gazing at Jesus, I don't mean getting more information about Him. I mean, you could take a whole year just in John, looking at the way Jesus responded, the way He thought and what He said. When we gaze at the man Jesus and we measure success by Jesus, we begin to take the long way to our destination at the promptings of the Father, to speak to men and women. Society will tell you, you really shouldn't be talking to them and Holy Spirit will reveal their most shameful and deep dark secrets and we will communicate that insight so drenched in love they won't hide in shame but they'll say, you got to meet this girl. you got to meet this guy who knows this guy, Jesus, who knows everything I ever did. When we measure success by gazing at Jesus, I mean really looking at the man, Jesus. Then when one of our inner three who's been there in your most vulnerable moments, and there on your mountaintops, betrays you and denies you, not once, not twice, but three times. And then you see them in their typical extra fashion, jumping out of a boat, coming towards you with their foot lodged in their mouth. You can walk in forgiveness and still choose to build ministries upon them and Through them and with them. When we gaze at Jesus, we won't see ourselves as the enemies of our cities, our universities, our school, our societies, and of broken humanity because oh, they've got woke agendas. Even when they're busy deconstructing the church, we will be moved with compassion in our deepest places when we look on them and say, Oh, but they're just a sheep without a shepherd and like a mother hen, we will want to get. All the chicks underneath our wings, and when we gaze at Jesus in worship, when we look past the worship itself, though uneducated, though simple, though unqualified, though faltering. In his presence, boldness from the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. And people say they have surely been with Jesus. I can tell by their glow. And when we gaze at Jesus in prayer, not just bringing our requests, that's that's good. But also take the time to really look at Jesus when we face the dark night of the soul. And our closest intercessors are snoring in the corner again. In the press and in the pressure of having to do what we know God has called us to do. Despite the loss and the pain, we're able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. To pick ourselves up, to walk one step after another and not consider it a burden. But say it's a joy to pick up my cross and to follow you. Oh, if we just turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth that we measure success by grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You know, I'd love it if the team would come join me because for the next few moments, I would love us. To minister to the Lord, to bless his heart, to turn the eyes of our hearts towards him because the world needs a transformed bride. The world needs a transformed global church and a transformed church. And the way we reach that transformation, the work of the spirit, is by simply coming faults and all, beholding him, spirits activated And we become, who knows, in the next five minutes you might look more like Jesus than you ever have before simply because you gaze at Him. So why don't you stand to your feet? Father, I pray if there are any obstacles right now, any lies even that we're believing about why we can't come into Your presence, I pray, Holy Spirit, You would come now, that You would bring light to those dark thoughts. And I pray God that we would come fully open right now, holding nothing back, nobody thinking they're disqualified because You've removed all the obstacles and we're designed to come face to face in intimate relationship and to lock eyes and to minister to You. So we come now just as we are knowing that You have made a way that we could come right on in, climb up onto the Father's lap and simply love You. And it is our delight and our desire to do just that in the next few moments. Come on, you lift your hands all across this place as the team leads us? i